Well, I want to talk to you this morning for a few minutes on the subject of righteousness. So turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 1, which gives us the story of the creation, the account of creation. And I want you to notice in verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So image and likeness must be two different things. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now, we can say and have said numerous times that it is without dispute. It's one of the great secrets of the church. It's not supposed to be a secret. It should be well known. But we can say without dispute that God created man for one and only one purpose, and that was to have dominion over the earth. God didn't make man because he is lonely. He's God. It's impossible for him to be lonely. He didn't make man because he wanted somebody to have fellowship with, although the fellowship that we have with our Father through the Word and through prayer is a wonderful, wonderful thing. But the stated purpose for God's creation of man was for him to have dominion, authority, here in the earth. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, it tells us, gives us a little bit more detail about how man was created. It said, God made him, fashioned him with his own hands, and then breathed in him the breath of life. Now, what did God breathe into man? What did he breathe into Adam? Well, for God to have breathed into him, and it's interesting to me that the Bible is very specific in saying that man's life was a source or came about a result of God breathing into him and he became a living soul. Well, that means that whatever God breathed into man was part of himself. The source of man's life was God himself. Well, what is God? Well, the Bible says God is a righteous judge. So if God breathed himself into man, he breathed into him the purity of the Holy Spirit, the very righteousness of God. The thing I want you to see, folks, is that God intended from the beginning. And remember, God never changes. So God's original intent is his present day intent. God didn't change his plan. Man wasn't strong enough, nor was the devil strong enough to thwart or detour God's plan. God's original plan, his present day plan, his eternal plan is for righteous men to have dominion on the earth. Now, we know the story. We know what uh, what happened. We know that after God made Adam and Eve, he gave them a commandment not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, we can see from what happened. Of course, we know that Adam sinned and Adam fell. And all mankind fell. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man's sin, talking about Adam, one man's transgression, sin entered the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for all men have sinned. What that means is Adam's sin covered all of mankind. Now, I used to think, until really pretty recently, that since the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that Satan is the God of this world, that man lost his authority when he sinned and when he fell in the Garden of Eden. But that can't be true. 
Because you remember, even under the old covenant, God said to man that as you've spoken in my ear, so shall I do unto you. And then again, he said, and we're just picking out a couple. There are numerous times where other things were said along this line. But he said, behold, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life. Well, if man had lost his authority when he sinned in the Garden of Eden, what difference would his choice make? Why would his words be important? They wouldn't. Yeah, but the Bible does say that Satan is the god of this world. Well, the word world, there are three, three different phrases that are used, or three different words that are used when it's talking about the earth. They're all translated world. One of them means the planet. Satan is not the god of this planet. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Another word that's used means eon or time period. Well, Satan is the god of this time period. Another word is used, and it means the world system. Satan's not even god of this world system because you can overcome the curse of this world system by obedience to the word and faith in God. If he had authority over the world system, then it wouldn't matter what you and I did. We'd be at his mercy. Thank God we're not. But the word that's used for when it says that Satan is the God of this world, it means time period. Satan is the God of this world in this current time. In, the, in this and only this sense. He has influence or opportunity to influence man for evil instead of good. But that's all he can do. He can't make you sin. He can't keep anybody out of the kingdom of heaven. It's up to them and it's their choice. So when Adam fell, the Bible tells us that that their eyes were opened. Immediately their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. And so they made fig leaves and coats and whatever they could to cover up. It's interesting. One translation of that, that verse where their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked and they were ashamed. One translation of that verse said that they knew what they had done. Now, what happened when man fell? He lost his righteous nature. He didn't lose his authority, but he lost his righteous nature. In other words, he lost his confidence to stand before God and to take dominion in the earth. That's what changed unrighteousness passed upon all men the bible calls that spiritual death spiritual death can most easily or most specifically be defined best defined perhaps as separation from god the first thing that happened when adam and eve fell when they sinned is that they saw their condition and they were ashamed it says that they heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, as he did every day, apparently. And he called out Adam's name. Adam, Adam, where are you? Adam answers back from behind the bushes somewhere, I guess. He said, we saw that we were naked and ashamed and we were afraid. Fear is the first thing that came upon mankind. Fear was the first thing. After realizing his condition, his fallen condition, the first thing that occurred in him was fear well fear is the opposite of confidence 
It's the opposite of faith. Where before he stood before God openly. Talked to him about all kinds of things. I'm sure God taught him a lot of the things about creation and how things worked. Imagine a world without sin. And the wonderful things that God could have told him and would have told him about his creation. But fear came in between him and God. Fear kept him from fulfilling God's plan and God's purpose. Now there are not many, there are not many times early on where the Bible talks about righteousness. But two are very significant. One is concerning Noah. When God appears to Noah before he tells him about the flood he said. I've seen that you are righteous in my sight. Now I'm not sure how he accomplished that. Because there was no law to keep. I'm not sure what Noah did to distinguish himself from other men on the earth at that point in time for God to appear to him, tell him about the flood, and make a covenant with him that provided him safety and security for himself and his family. The Bible doesn't tell us. But there was something that distinguished Noah from the rest of the people on the earth at that time. Whatever that was, God saw it as righteousness. But the next time that it's used is in Genesis chapter 15. Where God appears unto Abram, he's already talked to him about the blessings. He's already made him rich. He's seen his faithfulness. God's seen Abram's faithfulness to do what he's given him to do up to that point. And in Genesis chapter 15, God says, fear not, Abram, for I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And then Abram starts talking to him and he says, well, I don't have a child. You promised me a child years ago, and I don't have one yet. So God shows him the stars of the sky and says, how many are those up there? Count them. Well, Abraham can't count them. There's too many to count. And then God says, so shall your seed be as the stars of the sky. So shall your seed be. Genesis 15, 6 says this. It says, and Abram believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, folks, here's something that's that's vitally important. It's critical that we see and understand. Even under the old covenant, the covenant that God made with Adam, I'm sorry, with Abraham, that was ratified and codified, specific commandments were given later on through Moses. Even the old covenant, which the Bible says was designed for one and only one purpose, it was not designed so that man could come to God. It was designed so that man would see that he needed a savior. It revealed to mankind that he was a sinner. That's it. That's the purpose for the old covenant. God didn't need a set of rules and regulations to come to man. The set of rules and regulations were simply, specifically designed so that man would see, I need somebody to help me out here. I can't get to God on my own. Because no man was able to keep the law. But when Abram... Who Abraham, who was Abram at the time, his name hadn't yet been changed. When God told Abram about his seed and his children, number being as numbers, being as the stars could be numbered without number, actually I should say. It says Abram believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Here's the point I want you to see: faith is the only way. For man to regain his righteous position. 
And notice also this righteousness is attached to authority. I'm going to tell you my opinion on something here. You judge it for yourself. I want to make sure that you know it's my opinion and not specifically stated in Scripture. But I believe that a man's authority can only and will only rise to the level of his understanding of righteousness. I believe the reason the church doesn't operate in the authority that Jesus gave us through his name is because the church has a very limited understanding of what righteousness is and what it's for. Let's look at a couple of scriptures, a couple of things that the Bible says about righteousness to prove my point and see how connected it is with authority. Look with me to Isaiah chapter 54. <coughs> Isaiah chapter 54, notice verse 14. Here's God talking about mankind and what the place that mankind should have and, and does have now through the work of Jesus. It says in verse 14 of Isaiah 54, In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. Remember, Adam was afraid when he saw his unrighteous condition. For thou shalt not fear, and from terror... For it shall not come near thee. Now I want you to notice that word established. The word established literally means to stand upright or erect. <clears throat> it's figuratively used for man standing strong, a position of strength. But one uh, translation is very interesting to me about this. <clears throat> it says it this way. It says, in righteousness shall your rights be known. In righteousness shall your rights be known. We can't stand strong unless you know what your rights are. So much of the church world is weak because they don't know what belongs to them. Wouldn't you agree? So in righteousness shall your rights be known. I like that. Shalt thou be established. Know your rights. Thou shalt be far from oppression. Well, the devil's the oppressor, isn't he? So far from oppression would have to indicate authority over him, over the devil. Thou shalt be far from oppression for or because thou shalt not fear. Now, we don't want to build a doctrine on just one scripture, but we can prove it in in numerous ways. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that that Jesus destroyed him that had the power of death and the fear of death. Talking about spiritual death, talking about being separated from God. But if we're to accept this literally, as it is interpreted as it is written, then notice it says that oppression is the result of fear. Oppression is the result of fear. You know what would be a good exercise for every believer? To spend some time meditating on the fact that we've been delivered from the power of the devil and nothing shall by any means hurt us and tell the devil that we're not afraid of him. Now, the first time you say that, you may say it with a trembling voice. But the more you get used to saying it, the more real it becomes. 
If you can overcome whatever it is, whatever area it is, that the devil tries to make you afraid, then nothing will ever hold you back. In righteousness thou shalt be established, or know your rights. And thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. Now, I don't know what you're afraid of or what the devil tempts you to be afraid of, but the devil has something for everybody. There is something or some area that the devil tries to make every one of us afraid. You need to tell him concerning that area, I'm not afraid of you. In righteousness shalt thou be established, thou shalt be far from oppression. For thou shalt not fear, and from terror, far from terror as well. For it shall not come near you. Look at verse 17. No weapon. Everybody say no weapon. He didn't say not many weapons. He said no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. No work of the devil will prosper. If you know your righteousness. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. He's talking about the devil. He's talking about speaking to the works of the devil that's trying to bring to pass in your life. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Now, folks, it's, uh, it's easy for us to look back to Adam's fall in the garden and say, man, wouldn't it have been great if he never fell? Wouldn't it be great... If all of us were just living in the, according to the world system that the Garden of Eden was operating under, wouldn't that just be wonderful? Well, in one way, I guess it would. We would never have known sin. But in the second way, the most important aspect of this, in my opinion, is that it would mean that you would have the capability to lose your righteousness by doing the wrong thing. Now, there wouldn't be any temptation in your flesh. There wouldn't be any result of Adam's fall if he never fell. And so it would be a different thing for us to resist sin under those conditions than it is for us now. But there would still be the possibility, the potential for any and every one of us to lose our righteousness based on our own actions. But in the day that we live now, because of the work that Jesus did, You can't lose your righteousness except under the most extreme condition. Why? Because Adam's righteousness was of himself. It was the source of the result of the life of God being breathed into him. But that's why God gave him a commandment not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. His actions, Adam's actions... Dictated whether righteousness would rule and reign in his life. And the same would have to be true for you and me. If he hadn't fallen. But as it is. Because of the work of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The shedding of his precious blood. The life that he gave for man to be free. You can't lose that. Except under the most extreme condition. Now look back to Adam. Imagine what Adam was doing when he fell and their eyes were opened. They saw that things had changed. They saw they understood then what they had done. And they're hiding themselves from God for fear. 
Folks, that's Satan's ultimate goal is for you to hide from God because of fear. The first thing they recognized was that they were unworthy to stand in God's presence. So they hid themselves among the trees. But because Jesus has come and died for us, we can get out in the open again. Because our righteousness is not of ourselves. It's of him. Well, what what does it mean when it says it's of him? It means the righteousness that we have because of the finished work of Jesus is just like God is, never changing and eternal. Look with me to chapter 41 of Isaiah. Let's see something else it says. Notice righteousness is connected in those verses in chapter 54 with the authority that man has. Verse 10 Isaiah 41, verse 10, it says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed. The word dismayed means to be distracted. Don't get distracted, for I am thy God. Now, what he means is distracted by sin, distracted by the works of the devil, and so forth. But he says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. So when you feel weak, that's not a big deal. God said he'll strengthen you. When you feel helpless, that's not a big deal because God said, I'll help you. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. So again, he's talking about being free from fear. And free from the one that has the power of death through fear. Because he's on your side. Because he's with you. Because he's for you. Because you're part of his family. Now Paul had a hard time. Reconciling some of these things to himself. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. I love the book of Romans. Because we get the most personal glimpse. Of Paul's life and Paul's. Christian journey. Of any of the other letters. And interestingly enough, Romans was written to to people that he had not yet ministered to. He'd wanted to come to them several times but hadn't gotten there. But he had heard of the churches that had been started in Rome, houses in Rome and so forth. And so he wanted to make sure that they had the benefit of the revelation that he received from the Lord about who we are in Christ and what belongs to us. And I think it's for that reason that he gives us a closer glimpse or understanding, a closer look into his life and into his own progress in the things of God than any of the other letters that he wrote to the churches and I'm I I really don't think we can overemphasize how important that is because without the book of Romans we'd look at Paul as the guy that God just snatched away from the work of the enemy made him one of his generals one of his leaders of the body of Christ and it'd be easy to think of him as never having a problem It's kind of like Joseph in the Old Testament. I love the story of Joseph, but I can't identify with him. Because the closest thing you can come to anything Joseph ever did wrong was telling his brothers and his mother and father about his visions. Well, how do you relate to a guy that that's it? You just see God taking from difficult situation to prosperity to, to promotion and so forth. I have a harder time relating to Joseph than I do to David. 
David, I understand. And the reason I understand is because I understand and see the truth of his failures. Joseph, not so much. Well, Paul would be in that same category. Because if he didn't tell us about the difficulties that he had with his Christian life, then we would just have to assume that once Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, revealed himself to him and received his sight three days later and was filled with the Holy Ghost, that everything was straight into the blessing of God from that point without any difficulty. But he tells us in the book of Romans about his own struggles. Now he tells us some things that we know. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 17. He says, for if by one man's offense death reigned by one. He's talking about Adam's sin and uh, how that caused spiritual death to pass upon all men. For if by one man's offense, or since by one man's offense, that's what the word if here means. There are four different words in the um, Greek language that are translated if. The first one is uh, literally the word since, or the meaning is since, and that's the one that's used here. Since one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life. Notice the connection between authority and righteousness. Shall reign in life by one Christ Jesus. Shall reign in life. Now this is an interesting thing because it tells us that there's something about grace and righteousness that gives us authority. Well, if that's true, and we know it is, then the church operating in a lack of authority or a low level of authority would mean that there's something about the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness that we haven't yet taken hold of. Well, if that's true in my life, I want to fix it. Don't you? So he says, for if by one man, since one man's sin, one man's offense, caused death to reign, much more, this phrase much more is used several times in the writings of Paul, and it means it's so farther, it's so higher, much higher than the other that they really shouldn't be compared. Well, we know it's true that death reigned by Adam's sin, but it's way, 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 way more true. That's what much more means. So much higher that it shouldn't even be used in comparison. Much more they that receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Christ Jesus. Now somebody identified uh, grace as this, illustrated grace as this. Suppose you were in a hurry, had somewhere that you had to be or trying to get there on time. And as a result, you were driving 55 miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone. You're pulled over, the cop gives you a ticket, and you have to go to court. When you go to court, the judge, here's the evidence, here's the policeman's report, here's your side, and the whole thing, slams his gavel down on the, on the bench and says, guilty. And the fine is $250. Then, it's, then the judge stands up, reaches into his own pocket, And says, here's $250, I'll pay your fine. He's judged you rightly as being in the wrong. But he paid the fine for you. He paid the price. But it doesn't stop there. The guy walks out toward his car, which is an old beat up jalopy. The judge walks right behind him. Gets to where he is, sees the car that he's driving. And says, how would you like a brand new car? 
pulls out the keys to a brand new car, one that he just drove off the dealer lot from the day before, puts it into the hand of the man that was guilty but whose fine was paid and provides for him a better means of transportation, a brand new means of transportation for him to live his life with. Now let me ask you something. With that illustration in mind, how stupid would it be for the guy that's now had his fine paid in a brand new car to focus on the fact that he broke the law by speeding? How stupid would it be for the guy to fall to his knees on the sidewalk and say, oh, I'm not worthy of this gift? Well, we knew that before he ever said anything. How stupid would it be for him to focus on the things that he had done wrong instead of the generosity of the judge who made it all right? Yet that's the situation that most of the church world is in. They're focusing on what they did. They're focusing on what they feel about being unworthy. And folks, that's what the Bible means when it uses the word fear. It's not talking about just being afraid of something like you'd be afraid of a uh, a scorpion or a snake or something like that. It means fear in the sense of respect. To give respect to your own wrongdoing instead of the finished work of Jesus. Now, with that in mind, let's read this again. Verse 17. For since by one man's offense, death reigned by one. No question that's true. Much more. They which receive the abundance of grace. Take the car. And the gift of righteousness. Restored to the place of confidence and right standing before God. How much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life. Shall reign in life. Shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Paul understood this, folks. He understood from the revelation that he received from the Holy Ghost himself. Directly from God. Not because anybody taught him or anybody helped him along with this. These are things that he saw because of what God revealed to him. This is a part of the gospel that Paul said the whole world will be judged by. We don't have an excuse. We've got the truth. It's given to us. You don't have to walk in it, but you can't use the excuse that you didn't know. Paul understood this. Paul received this by revelation, so he knew it had to be true. Skip with me down to verse 21. Let's see something else that the Holy Ghost revealed to him. He says that as sin has reigned, well, back up to verse 20. We'll start with that, get a little context. He said, moreover, the law entered, talking about the law of Moses. The law entered that the offense might abound. That just simply means that man would know he had no chance by doing it on his own. He could not do it on his own. He had to have somebody pay his fine and provide strength and power for his Christian walk. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more. Here's that phrase, much more again. So far greater that they really shouldn't be compared. 
whereas sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin reigned unto death, even so by grace might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice grace is supposed to reign through righteousness. Now in chapter 7, Paul tells us the story of his own journey. And the seventh chapter, we won't turn over there and we won't look at the specific verses, but I trust that you know your Bible well enough to, to realize that the things that we're about to say are true. If not, read, verse, uh, read chapter 7 and see it for yourself. Paul said, I'm still struggling with my flesh. I know I've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 or 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. He says in verse 21, that we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Let me read this to you. Verse 17 again. Therefore if any man be in Christ. He is a new creature. Paul knew that. He knew he had been made a new creature. One translation says a new species of being. A born again man is a new species of, of being. He's passed from death to life. And only through Jesus. Could a man do that. No one before Jesus ever did that. But because of what Jesus did, you and I have passed from death to life. We've become this new species of being. That's why Paul's journey is so important. That's why understanding what he came to understand is so critical for us. Because he said, even though I know I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus, I still have trouble with my flesh. What doesn't that mean since I find myself doing things I don't want to do, the things that my heart doesn't want to do? Doesn't that therefore mean that I'm unrighteous? No. If your righteousness was of you, meaning if it was dependent on your good works, you're doing the right thing and never doing the wrong thing, then you'd lose your righteousness every time you sinned. Well, then what would you do? This is the doctrine that I heard in the Assembly of God Church. I don't know if it's the Assembly of God doctrine uh, throughout the whole denomination, but the church that I went to for a while, people were sinning and getting born again time after time after time after time after time according to their own understanding. Because if they sin, then you've got to get born again again because you just lost your righteousness and you've got to get it back. Well, what if you died in that lull period? <laughs> what happens to you then? It was a real issue for them. They made sure they went around confessing their sin every day because they didn't want to die without confessing their sin because in their thinking that means they wouldn't have gone to heaven. Well, how do you get born again again? How do you get born again the second time or the third time or the the thousandth time? How do you get born again so many times? You don't. Now they thought and and their practice propagated this idea since they're going around confessing their sin, trying to get back in good graces with God, according to their own thinking, they're focused throughout their whole Christian life on sin, not God. And that focus on sin accelerated, propagated, added to the fact that they would sin again and again and again and again and again. Well, that's the situation Paul was in. He said, I find myself doing my body. I find things in my body and my flesh pulling me into doing things that I don't want to do. He figured out, he understood that the difference was the man on the inside didn't want to 
and resented and, and despised the unrighteous actions of his flesh. He says, what am I supposed to do with that? The things that the man on the inside wants to do, that my body doesn't always do. And the thing that the man on the inside doesn't want to do is the stuff I see my body doing. Woe is me, he said. He even said this. He said, who shall deliver me from this body of death? He recognized the sin was in his flesh, not his inner man. The inner man has been born again. He's a new creature. He's a new species of being. But it doesn't mean that you'll never have trouble with your flesh again. What does he come to understand? He comes to understand Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. See, folks, God knows that your flesh is weak. But the shed blood of Jesus is greater than the weakness of your flesh. Thank God for that. Paul understands to such a degree that he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, For he has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made. Everybody say made. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. They that receive the abundance of grace, just like Abraham did, believe God, and God counted it to him for righteousness. You believe God and are made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And there's only one exception, and it is an extreme case identified in Hebrews chapter 6 where a person can ever lose that salvation, that righteousness. Now, the devil wants to try to make you think you've gotten there and that you may have done that. Or at least he does with a lot of people. But, folks, let me tell you something. I've been pastoring for 31 years. I was in the ministry for five years before that. After 36 years, you're going to stumble up on a few things. You don't have to be too smart to learn a little bit in 36 years. And in those 36 years, there's only one time, one situation that I can look at that might even qualify for a person losing their salvation. And it ain't you. I hesitate to even say that the, the one situation is such that a man has lost his salvation. I'll go so far as to say this. If he stays on the same track he's on, he probably will. If he hasn't already. But the simple truth of the matter is that most people never mature to the place where they can lose their salvation. Because Hebrews 6 talks about a situation where somebody with their eyes wide open. Having experienced the maturing maturity in spirit. And the power of God in their lives to make a willing, eyes open choice to turn away from Jesus. And that's not you. So, Paul's journey 
ended with the understanding that God doesn't condemn you for the actions of your flesh. This seems to be a paradox, and a lot of people have trouble with it, but it's true. And that is this. Unrighteous actions from your flesh, the devil's influence upon your flesh, does not change you from being righteous by the blood of Jesus to being unrighteous. It doesn't do it. Now, again, if your righteousness was of you, then your actions would determine whether or not you were in or out. But the only action that determines whether you're in and out is simply accepting Jesus. That's the only one. Once you make that one, once you make that choice to come into the family of God, you have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, some people have trouble with you when you make statements like that too because they think it gives people license to sin. They think, well, if you make it that easy and that sure and that absolute, then people will use that as a license to sin. Well, folks, let me tell you something. In those 36 years, I've found that people sin with or without a license. that's just the fact so why should we turn away from the truth of the word because some people that are looking for a reason to justify their sin anyway are going to misuse the truth I don't know about you but I'm not going to stay in this place of feeling or sensing myself to be unworthy just because some people may misinterpret or misuse the truth amen Notice one last thing. Turn with me over to uh, John chapter 16. John chapter 16, Jesus is talking about the comforter. Let's start in verse, uh, uh, start in verse 7. It said, nevertheless, Jesus is talking to his disciples on the night that he's betrayed. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is, is it, it is expedient. The word expedient means better or helpful. It is expedient. It's better for you that I go away. I'm sure that was hard for the disciples to hear. Because I'm sure they could not imagine anything to be better than spending the time with Jesus and watching the miracles and so forth. But Jesus said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is better for you, expedient, better that that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come. He's saying it's better in the day that we're living in than the days that the disciples lived in when Jesus walked on the earth. But how many times do people, we may be tempted ourselves, come to the place where we say, oh, if only we'd been alive when Jesus was here. Jesus said it's better now. It's better now. The comforter being here that does the same work that Jesus did is necessary, helpful, better for us than if we'd been one of the 12 walking around with Jesus and seeing with our eyes the things that the Bible tells us. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, notice verse 8, and when he has come, he will reprove the world. The word reprove means convict, bring unto conviction. He will convict the world of sin 
and of righteousness and of judgment. Now put those three things together. Here's what the Holy Ghost will convict us of. We might even say it this way. Here's what the Holy Ghost will bear witness in our hearts to. Sin and righteousness and judgment. See, if we go back to the illustration of the guy that was speeding, the judge rightly sentenced him. He rightly judged him. God is a God of justice. God can't look away from sin. If he could look away from sin, then he would have excused man without Jesus coming to the earth and dying on the cross. But he can't do that because he's a God of justice. Sin had to be paid for. Adam's sin had to be paid for. The wages of sin is death. Somebody had to die. If Jesus hadn't died in your place and in mine, then that means we would be subject to death, spiritual death, eternal death, because the price would still have to be paid. God is so merciful that even those that died before Jesus, that had respect unto God and respect under the law of Moses, were kept in a holding place called paradise until Jesus could come, finish the work, and take them first with him into heaven. God doesn't want anybody to die. But somebody had to die because of Adam's sin. That was Jesus. So when the Holy Ghost has come, the Comforter has come, thank God he's come now, he will convict the world, he will bear witness to three things, sin and righteousness and judgment. Now you tell me, which of those three does the church world focus on the most? Sin and or judgment, in my thinking. Why? Why? It's got to be a reason. got to be an explanation. Notice what Jesus said about him convicting the world of these things. When he has come, he will convict or reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Now, what does that have to do with the church? Not a stinking thing. Because you do believe on him. You can't get into the family of God. You can't be a part of the body of Christ without believing on him. So why concern concern yourself with sin? The Holy Ghost didn't bear witness with your heart about sin. Other than if you miss it to repent and get things right with God. Restore fellowship. Not relationship. Big difference between relationship and fellowship. Relationship is like the marriage contract. You know you're married whether you're getting along with your husband or your wife or not. The relationship isn't broken because one of them does something stupid and offends the other one. The relationship is intact. Maybe fellowship isn't. If you're going to restore fellowship in a marriage, you're going to have to work things out between the two of you so that you're no longer repentant. That's what confession of sin does for us with God. He doesn't excuse it, but he forgives it. So Jesus said the Holy Ghost will do three works or one work of reproving or convicting in three different areas. Of sin because they believe not on me. Verse 10, of righteousness because I go unto my Father. And you see me no more. So Jesus is telling the disciples, I know you don't want me to go, but it's better for you to go because if I don't go, you can't be righteous. 
Think about what that means. That means your righteousness before God, which is designed and intended to give you confidence to stand before him without any sense of guilt or sin or shame or anything else. Just as Paul said, there is no condemnation of them that are in Christ Jesus. God's not mad at you because you miss it. He knows you missed it from your flesh and not from your heart. Of righteousness, he's talking about the Holy Ghost. Jesus is talking about the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost will convict or impress upon or bear witness to the children of God about righteousness because he went to the Father. How many of you believe Jesus died on the cross? How many of you believe that he was raised from the dead? How many of you believe he's gone to the Father and seated at his right hand? Then notice what Jesus says the Holy Ghost will do, the work that the Holy Ghost will do in you, or is intended to do, intends to do, was designed to do, and that is to bear witness with your spirit, your heart, the real you on the inside, not the outside, not the outer man, the the one that's tainted by the residue of sin in the flesh, but the inside, the real you, will be convicted that you are righteous. Is that what you spend your time meditating on? Are you yielding to the spirit of God bearing witness to the fact that you're righteous? To many of the church are not. Which is the reason they're not reigning in life. Through Christ Jesus. The last one he said in judgment... Here's the third work of the Holy Spirit of right of judgment, verse 11, because the prince of this world is judged. Notice he did not say because man is judged. He's talking about the devil. Because the devil is judged. Sentence has been passed on the devil. So much of the church is worried about sentence being passed upon them when the reality is the work of Jesus passed judgment on the devil. And that's the reason Jesus said, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Isaiah 54 says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Jesus said, behold, I give you authority over all the work of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Folks, I believe with all my heart, the greater understanding we get of righteousness, I don't mean just tearing it from the outside, I mean getting it down on the inside coming to the place where we know that we know that we know that we know that we know when righteousness becomes bigger in us than any of the things the devil has been lying to us about we step into a place of authority where we do the works of Jesus one thing I wish the book of Romans told us is how long it took Paul to come to the understanding of Romans 8 1 How long did it take him to come to the place to understand that the wrong actions of his flesh was not really him? How long did it take him to come to the place to understand that there's no condemnation even when he's doing the wrong thing? Because from the inside, he always wants to do the right thing. How long did that take for him? Maybe it's better we don't know. Maybe he handled it quickly and we've come under condemnation because it's taken us longer. 
I'm sure the devil would find some way to try to twist it and turn it against us. But the important truth is this. There is no condemnation to you. No matter what you're struggling with, no matter how many times you've fallen in it. The Bible says the righteous man falls seven times and gets up again each time. It does not say a righteous man doesn't fall. See, the stumbling and falling is not the issue. It's getting back up again that is. Amen? You've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And nothing the devil can do can change that. Ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have made us righteous because Jesus was made to be sin. Satan, we're not afraid of you anymore. We're not afraid of what you're bringing into our lives. We're not afraid of what you threaten to do to us. We're not afraid of anything related to you, for we have authority over you. And we have received the abundance of grace. Oh, Father, thank you for your saving mercy, your saving grace. Thank you for your strengthening grace. Thank you for the grace of God that provides us everything that we need to walk in victory in life. And oh, Father, thank you for the gift of righteousness. The righteousness that we've been made because Jesus did the work on the cross, made a sacrifice for us, shed his precious blood that we might be free. So good to be free, Lord. We declare that we're free in every area. We declare by faith that we're free in every area. We're free from sin. We're free from addictions. We're free from all that would hold us, hold us in bondage. We're free from all of the work of the devil. Thank you, Lord, that even though our flesh may not yet be lined up with the truth of your word, your word is still true. And your word says we're free. Thank you, Lord, that we are not the actions of our body. We are not the symptoms of the sickness that attacks us. We are not that which addictions would hold us bound by. That's not us. The real us, the real me on the inside is the new creation in Christ Jesus. It's the one that's been born again. It's the one that's been translated from death into life. And Father, we thank you that your plan for our lives haven't changed no matter what we've done or where we've gotten off track. Your plan for us is still the same. Your plan never changes. Thank you, Father, for revealing that plan to each and every one of us. That we would know how to step in and how to walk in the your perfect will thank you father that we're righteous in your sight in Jesus name think for a minute about how frustrated the devil must be how frustrating it must be for him when he's successful to get us under his influence to do the wrong things To know that that does not change our righteous nature. 
How frustrating that must be for him. To know that no matter what he gets us involved in, what he influences us to do, to know that that doesn't change our righteous nature. How frustrating it must be to the devil who's made us all sin or made not a good work, tempted us all to sin successfully in many cases. How frustrating it must be to know that our righteousness is not of us. Because if it was, it would come and go. But our righteousness is of him. And for that reason, no weapon formed against us shall ever prosper. How frustrating that must be for the devil. We look at the world around us and we think the devil's got it by a chokehold. But the devil looks at things that are taking place and says, no matter what I do, I can't take away the righteousness. No matter what I can influence them to stumble into and fall into, I can't take away the righteousness. I wonder how many times the devil has screamed out at God, it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. I trip them up and they're still righteous. I trip them up and there's still no condemnation to them. I trip them up and you're still there loving them just the same. How frustrating it must be for the devil. I take great glory in that. Don't you? Amen. Let's all stand. I'm going to lead you in a confession for a minute before we close. Is that all right? Say this after me. I am born of God. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And he has made unto me righteousness. The righteousness that is in my spirit. That I have been born unto. Is not of me. My actions do not depend on. My, my righteousness does not depend on my actions. Because my righteousness is of, is of God. Devil, I serve notice upon you. I'm not afraid of you anymore. Because you can't take me out of my father's hand. I am eternally righteous. By the blood of Jesus. I will endeavor to live free from sin. But regardless... My righteousness will never change. God's love for me will never change. I am righteous in his sight. Amen. Folks, if we develop confidence in that, if we develop the kind of confidence in that that we're supposed to have, we'll be able to come boldly before God no matter what the situation is. And see the greatness of God on display in our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. We love you. Have a great day and come on back and be with us tonight if you can for Healing School. You're dismissed.